into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we read now that you will open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Open our minds to understand you. Open our hearts to welcome you, to accept you, and to allow you to transform us to be like you. So we're as far as chapter 4 and beginning at verse (coughs) 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Keep your Bibles open because we'll refer back to those uh, as we go. So, we are um, nearing the end of our series in um, Philippians. Uh, so, this week, and I think next week is the last one. So, we're, we're in, Paul is concluding uh, where he's got to. And in this um, his, his uh, letter to the Philippians, as the time has gone on, and as we got further into the, to the letter, it's become more intimate. It's become much more personal. And uh, some of the things that we're going to be seeing today, I think, talk about that. Notice how Paul opens this letter in verse 1. Just have a look at it with me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Imagine getting a letter where the writer has written those words to you. How intimate, how personal, how loving that would be. Wouldn't it make you want to read on? and uh, take on board what's being talked about. What I'd like us to do today is start going through the, the passage, and we'll, we'll go so far, and then I'd just like to pause and we, we'll look at some of the themes, three themes that Paul talks about, and then we'll return to the passage and just think about how Paul integrates them into the whole thing. So I hope that's going to be okay. So, not uncharacteristically, Paul begins the chapter with the word, therefore... 
Um, so linguistically, saying therefore has to refer back to what's already gone. So we really need to pick up what, what Paul has been is saying in chapter 4 by going into chapter 3. So just look slightly above from where we started reading. And if we pick it up in, the, in verse 20 of chapter 3, we can see um, that he's saying this, Paul is saying this. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. We could say it another way. We could swap it round and we could say... Paul is telling us to stand firm in the Lord because our citizenship is in heaven. Because we have that bedrock, then that leads us to be able to stand firm. And that's the way that we should see it. Standing firm is something that Paul's been talking about throughout the letter. And he he continues to talk about what that means in the next few verses. Now, it's really important to understand that what Paul is saying here is not a random collection of thoughts. He is addressing very deliberately and very specifically the context and the circumstances of the Philippian church. And so we we can understand from the passage that we're looking at today, we can understand that the Philippians were struggling in these areas, in unity, in joy, in gentleness, with anxiety and with unhelpful thoughts. That's why Paul is addressing them. He's speaking directly into their circumstances. Now, those areas are things that will have resonance for us today. And we've already thought today through our singing, through, our, through the kids' talk. Then we've thought about these things and we've thought about the impact that these have on us. So it's very much a part of our lives. We've got much to learn from what Paul is saying to the church So he, in the context of this intimacy, this very personal, uh, personalised letter that is coming up from a basis of love, Paul is calling out to women. So he and he says this, picking it up in verse two. He says, "In the context, uh, sorry, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion." Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. We have no idea what the issue is that was causing the division between these two women. But we do know that it was really significant and really important, and it was having an impact Can you imagine if somebody had sent a letter to us and it was being read out and your name was called out and not in a good way? It would be just a little bit awkward, wouldn't it? But that's what's happening. But it's happening because it's important and it's having this impact on what's going on. Paul makes this uh, public. Bear in mind that this letter is being read out publicly to the Philippian church. Why is he doing that? Because it's having an impact on the work that they are doing. We don't know who this true companion is, and in a sense it doesn't much matter. But notice the way in which Paul refers to this individual, this unnamed individual, this true companion. Some versions of the Bible render that as loyal yoke fellow. 
But notice how that's, um, that person has been called in to help because this is a church matter. It's being made a church matter. Now, Paul's not, this isn't coming out of the blue because Paul's been talking about the need for unity earlier on in the letter. Just turn back a page to the beginning of chapter 2. And Paul is saying this to the, to, the, to the Philippian church. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any uh, common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In this disagreement, this this breakdown of unity between these two women, Paul is not taking sides. And notice that he actually starts the the process of healing by pointing out what these women have in common along with other people. Both of them and others have worked alongside Paul in uh, in their gospel mission. And these two women, along with others, their names are listed in the book of life. They They belong to the Lord. Paul is urging them to have this right attitude towards one another. And that attitude is the attitude that comes from following Christ. To be of the same mind. And to have that unity means adopting the humility that we see in the Lord Jesus. And that's why Paul says to them, be of the same mind in the Lord. Follow the example that we have in Jesus. Notice again that Paul is making this very public, and we might beg the question, why? It's none of his business, or why does it need to become the business of the church? But it needs to become the business of the church because it is having an impact on the gospel mission of the church. It is affecting what's going on. And so we have a biblical model here for where there is a breakdown of unity. What Paul is teaching us here is that any division in the church, any breakdown of unity, is damaging and it's dangerous. But if you find yourself in in a dispute or in conflict, then seek help. And if you're aware of others who are in that situation, then be prepared to help. In this situation, notice that Paul commends as he corrects. He affirms as he admonishes. He reminds as he rebukes. And that's part of the model for us to follow. Now, as I said, we'll just pause in the, in the passage for a moment because I want to just look at, take a slightly wider view at three themes that Paul picks up on and then we'll go back to the passage and see how Paul weaves them in together. And the first of these is anxiety. We've thought already about it, and um, you know it's ably illustrated by the children holding the signs up very high. Anxiety really needs very little introduction in our, in our day and age, does it? Everybody will experience anxiety or stress or fear or sadness 
as we've, as we've seen already today. Everybody will experience those things at some time or another and to varying degrees of intensity. Sometimes worries or fears are somewhat nebulous in nature, but anxiety is nevertheless a very real issue. It's joy-sapping. And for those that are caught up in it, they become introspective, they become self-absorbed as they are eaten away, consumed with worry. For people in those circumstances, it can be a very dark place. John Piper gives us this definition of anxiety. He says this, Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequence Consequences of not receiving it. Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. The Philippian church is facing, or at the time of Paul's letter, is facing a number of causes of their own anxiety, and Paul addresses them throughout this letter quite specifically. In chapter 1, Paul addresses their concerns, their fears for those who oppose them. In chapter 2, Paul addresses their concern for Epaphroditus, that's the person bearing this letter, uh, or the gift from the church to Paul and the letter back. Their concern for him and his well-being. Paul addresses the fact that he was seriously ill to the point of death. The church were also anxious about the internal conflict that we've uh, had mention of. And they also express a little bit later in chapter 4 their concern for Paul's imprisonment. And possibly they express concern over a lack of provision and Paul addresses those things very specifically. So there are causes of concern for the church then, just as there might be for us now. Jesus has addressed our own propensity to worry. In Matthew 6, we read Jesus' words that say this, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In telling us not to worry, Jesus is reminding us that worrying is pointless. It's fruitless. Worrying is something that is done by those that don't know God. It's not disciple activity. Jesus reminds us that God knows more than we know. And Jesus reminds us that God will provide everything that we need when we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. This isn't an empty um, pop song type philosophy, be happy, don't worry, be happy, lay back, let's all sip another cocktail type thing. I wish. This this is an invitation from the living and reigning Jesus Christ to cast our cares on him. Of course, there's a difference to be made between 
worry or concern or, or maybe alarm that causes us to react or to respond in a particular way. We can be concerned about things. We've prayed for Ukraine, and that's a massive concern. And it might occupy much of our thinking. But during that, that time, what, what needs to happen is that we refer it on to the Lord, that we just pass it to the Lord. That's very different to worrying fruitlessly, pointlessly, hopelessly. If we are relying on our own strength to deal with these things, then that worry will continue, it will build up and it will grow. Jesus offers hope. And that's what we cling to. And our first response when concerns and worries come along should be to turn to him, to cast our cares on him. So that's anxiety is the first of those themes that um, Paul is referring to. The second one that he refers to is peace. Now, peace also needs very little uh, introduction for us today. It's extremely pertinent. And we understand the notion of peace to be the absence of conflict or the absence of war. And indeed it is. Many of us will know the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. That's translated as peace. But the word shalom actually has a much fuller, more complex meaning. It, it does refer to the absence of conflict, but it also has implications for something bigger and fuller. It has to do with completeness and wholeness. And the word comes from the sense of um, building, a perfect building stone that has no chips or no cracks in it. Similarly, this notion of wholeness or completeness can refer to the building of a wall, a wall that has no gaps in it and no um, missing bricks in it. Now, for us, life is complex. We can face many challenging situations and relationships. And when these are damaged or missing or out of alignment, then that shalom, that sense of peace or completeness or wholeness is gone. We need restoration. Jesus is our shalom. Jesus is our prince of peace. <coughs> Jesus is the fullness of God and so is complete in himself. But Jesus brings to us that same sense of completeness, of restoration, of fullness, of wholeness as individuals. But Jesus also brings us that restoration in the relationship between us and God. As followers of Jesus, we're encouraged through the word to share and maintain that sense of peace, that sense of wholeness. It's a common theme in many of Paul's letters. He instructs churches to establish and maintain peace through unity, through humility, through patience, and through proactive love. The third theme, then, that Paul refers to is joy. 
Joy is not a feeling. It's an attitude. It's an attitude that God's people need to adopt, irrespective of their circumstance. It's not based on our circumstances, but it's based on our hope in God's love and in God's promises. God doesn't want his people to be identified or defined by their struggles or their hardship, but rather by the joy and the assurance of their future destiny. The early Christians were well known. They had a reputation for being full of joy, despite the persecution and the hardness that they, the hardship that they faced. We read in Acts chapter 13 and verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Joy is a really strong theme throughout this letter to the Philippians. It's mentioned throughout and we've heard throughout our series about how important joy is. And of course the irony is that Paul is writing this letter from the confines of prison. But as he writes, he is choosing joy. He is choosing to rejoice and he calls us to do the same. Choose joy, rather like choosing a book or choosing an item of clothing to wear. Choose it, make it a deliberate thing. And if we think about it, I mean if we really stop and think about it, if we think through what Jesus has done, then responding with joy, choosing joy, is not an unreasonable thing to ask. When we grasp that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever, including you and me, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, When we can grasp that, surely rejoicing should be our natural response. This doesn't mean that we ignore or we suppress hardships or difficulties that we might be facing. And Paul makes a real point of this. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he lists, in chapter 6, he lists some of the hardships that he has been through. He's been in troubles, hardships and distresses in beatings, imprisonments, and riots. He talks about hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. And in verse 8, he says this, through glory and dishonor, bad reports and good reports, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, and here's the crunch, Despite all of this, he says he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Paul's found the knack of putting on joy. Christian joy is a deep-seated, profound decision of faith and hope in the power of the Lord Jesus, in his life and in his love. So those are three big themes that Paul talks about, anxiety, peace 
and joy. Let's return to the passenger, just see how he works those in together. And it starts in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 4. He gives us some instructions. It says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It's a really full <laughs> instruction, such that I've broken it down here, so we can see the constituent, constituent parts of this. Let's just look briefly at them. It's, it's quite clear, isn't it, that the, the Philippians needed to have this message of joy. It's been the theme throughout the whole letter, but he makes it absolutely clear. And he's saying to them, rejoice in the Lord always. So good, he named it twice. Rejoice, and I'll say it again, rejoice. And for the sake of repetition, I'll say it a third time. Rejoice. Oh, and by the way, don't forget, rejoice. Put on that rejoicing. Remember, it's not about your circumstances. It's about your relationship with Jesus. And how often are we told to rejoice? That will be always. Not just when we feel like it. Can you imagine what impact would it have if we lived our lives in a state of constant rejoicing? What would that look like? We knew a, a little old lady, and she was a little old lady, um, some time ago. Her name was Elsie, and um, she, I, I don't know what kind of difficulties that she has. She had, certainly had mobility difficulties, and she couldn't hear very well. She had a really old-fashioned hearing aid, the sort where you plug things in, and it had um, pink wires down to a pink box that she had round a, on a strap round her neck. I think it was pink supposedly to be flesh-coloured, but this, nobody was that pink. And, um, you know, this, this would whistle every so often. So I've, I don't know what Elsie was hearing or what she wasn't hearing. But I'll tell you what, at the end of every service or every midweek Bible study, she would stand up at the end and she said, we shall go on our way rejoicing every time without fail. I learned an awful lot from Elsie. And that... that it's almost like she's putting her coat on. She's putting that rejoicing back on. And she's going to go out and she's going to rejoice no matter what. Imagine if we did that. Wouldn't it be awesome? Next, Paul talks to us here about gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Some translations of the Bible use a different word for gentleness there. Some use reasonableness or consideration or graciousness. But it's to do with dealing with other people, a gentle forbearance of one another. Again, this instruction from Paul begs the question, doesn't it? Is our gentleness, is our patient forbearing with one another evident to all those that we come into contact with? I have to ask myself that when I'm behind the wheel of the car. And the answer's a resounding no. We might actually have to ask the preceding question, do I actually desire gentleness in the first place? Maybe that's where we need to start and ask for the gift of gentleness and then practice it. Paul talks about the fact that the Lord is near. Now this might refer to the fact that the Lord in his spirit is with us always and sees what we're doing, or it might refer to the fact that, that 
Um, they were expecting Jesus to return in the same way that we're expecting Jesus to return. In either context, Jesus is aware of our motivation and attitude behind the things that we're doing. So there's an extra impetus for us to follow these instructions. Then Paul gives the instruction to the um, Philippian church that they needed to hear and that we need to hear. Have no anxiety. Notice that they're to have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. If we follow these instructions in all their constituent parts, there's a positive consequence that comes. Once we've read verses 4 to 6, we arrive at the somewhat glorious verse 7 that says this, if we follow those instructions and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. If we can actively combat anxiety with prayer and petition, we will experience God's If we are fully immersed in God's peace, we will know completeness and wholeness in him. That might seem to you a million miles away. It might seem a very long way out of reach. But remember this. Remember that God's peace transcends all human understanding. It cannot be described, it cannot be defined, it cannot be put in a box, it cannot be sold. It transcends human understanding. And there's another part to this promise. That God will guard our hearts and our minds. Not that he might, or that he could, or that he should, but he will guard our hearts and our minds. I have to say this has been my memory verse for a number of months now because increasingly I have realised that my heart and my mind need to be protected by God. My mind, where I think and imagine and dream and reflect and understand, need protection. My heart where I feel and respond and form attitudes and values, needs to be protected. Of themselves, they are unreliable, and they will lead me into temptation. The Bible is full of references to our hearts and our minds and the impact that they have on an individual person. I would encourage and urge you to make this your prayer. Pray that God will protect your heart and your mind. Do it on a daily basis. Finally then, Paul says in verse 8, almost as if to illustrate the point that he's just been making about our hearts and our minds, Paul says this, finally, whatever is true, Noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about such things. 
I remember walking into my very first school as a teacher and reading the staff handbook, and this was the, the mission of the school, these sentences I was thinking. It's not difficult to believe or to, to take this list and think, yeah, this is a pretty good list. I wouldn't mind thinking about these things. It's a good list, isn't it? And it's certainly something that the Philippian church needed to, to use to refocus their thinking. But don't we need it as well to refocus our thinking? Ask yourself the question, what do I allow into my mind? What do I allow into my mind? Through television, through books or magazines, through films, through social media, through conversations, through things that we see, through games and gaming even. Have we become desensitized to the impact that these things are having on us in our hearts and in our minds? Very often we're the last to realize that these things are having an impact on us. Others may see it before we do. But it's important to realise that these things can have a significant impact. And as Jesus reminds us, whatever we allow into our minds will get to our heart and that will affect what we do and what we say. Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 6, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things from the evil that is stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our challenge may come from the psalmist who says this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I recently came across a prayer that included these words. Please make anything that dishonours you completely unappealing to me. Change my heart and make me eager to seek after you and your righteousness. Please make anything that dishonours you completely unappealing to me. Another good prayer. Paul encourages his readers to follow his example, and Dan reminded us of this last week, that we too should follow faithful, godly examples. So, here's Paul's three-point plan. Rejoice in the Lord always. Have no anxiety, but pray with thanksgiving. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray.